You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We have with us today Benjamin Runkel, a former paratrooper and also former presidential speechwriter, who perhaps unusually for paratroopers also has a PhD in international relations from Harvard. Uh, he also has a bronze star from Operation Iraqi Freedom. He's worked in the Defense Department on the National Security Council staff. And the proximate cause for bringing him in today to talk with us is he's the author of the book just out, Wanted, Dead or Alive, Manhunts from Geronimo to Bin Laden. So Benjamin, welcome. Thank you very much, Mark. Glad to be here. You start your book out, uh, which, by the way, is a tremendous read. I want to compliment you. You start your book out uh, by talking about George Bush and his uh, famous or perhaps infamous remarks, I think about a week after September 11th, 2001, where he invoked the, uh, the phrase wanted, dead or alive, with regard to Osama bin Laden. And Bush came in for a lot of criticism over that. But you suggest that strategic manhunts, because that's what we were embarking on there, um, are in fact something the United States has done many times. In the, in the book, I find about 11 cases that could be described as strategic manhunts, uh, which I broadly define as, as campaigns in which the operational objective is to capture or kill one individual. What are some of these manhunts that maybe don't immediately come to our minds? I've, I argue that Geronimo, the Geronimo campaign in 1885-1886 was the first, followed by the hunt for Emilio Aguinaldo during the Philippine insurrection. The punitive expedition against Pancho Villa in 1916, the Sandino affair where U.S. Marines pursued a Nicaraguan rebel leader, Augusto Sandino, for five years in Nicaragua. After whom the Sandinista party is named. Correct. Then Shea, then Pablo Escobar, Manuel Noriega, Mohamed Farah Adid in Somalia in the early 90s, and then more recently, the more famous cases of Osama bin Laden starting in 1998, and then two cases in Iraq, Saddam Hussein and Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Why does the United States seem to like to do this? Uh, why do we seem to want to put a personal face on, on, on our wars? Well, there's several reasons. Colin Powell, in his memoir after the Panama operation, lamented that a president has to rally the country behind his policies. And when it comes to war, it's tough to use abstractions about ideologies, about um, international power politics, and a flesh and bl- blood villain serves better. And so it's an easy way to bound complex problems. That, so for someone with a, like bin Laden, and it's not 
international Salafism. It's not um, lack of political freedom in the Arab world. It's Osama bin Laden. It's much easier to pinpoint one person. Also, Americans have historically had a high aversion to causing civilian casualties in war, even dating back to the Civil War with the introduction of the Lieber Code, which were laws of war to try and minimize collateral damage uh, costs to civilians. And this has only accelerated as modern technology has made war more destructive. Political leaders, in order to, if they're perceived as being immoral, they won't have support for their foreign policies, so they'll naturally choose to have as narrow a target set as possible. Also, as we enter the as we enter the post Cold War era, we tend to see individuals as more of a threat rather than large mass movements. Hence, Noriega was a threat, not Panama writ large. Um, same thing with Iraq was really about Saddam. In these circumstances, we, other examples, though we didn't hunt them, would be Milosevic was the, was cited as the blame for all of the Balkan problems. Uh, Raúl Cedras was what Haiti was about, not Haiti's you know, massive internal problems. So this is a tendency. With the, also with the spread of technology, individuals now have access to greater destructive technology and will be perceived as more dangerous as individuals or smaller groups. And we also have, with technology, we at least think we have the better capability of finding and targeting individuals. So it will be much more tempting moving forward to target individuals. So there's a lot of philosophical uh, and political reasons, but also you ended with uh, we do this because we think we can. Yes. All right. So given all of that then, uh, and you said you had 11 cases in the book, roughly what's our success rate in killing or capturing these men? We're actually far more successful than I think the common perception was. I, I have us at eight out of 11, with the only three who got away were Pancho Villa, Augusta Sandino, and Mohammed Farah Adid. And when I started writing the book, Bin Laden, when I actually finished the manuscript, Bin Laden was still in that camp. So originally I had us at seven out of 11, and then very suddenly a very prominent and 8 out of 11. And I think before the Abbottabad raid that killed bin Laden, I think that the perceptions were that they were less that they were less successful than they actually were. I think that the failures tend to resonate more in people's minds uh, than the successes do. That Pancho Villa, the romanticism about him and evading U.S. forces, same with Sandino. Uh, Black Hawk Down being very much in the popular conscious, consciousness because of Mark Bowden's book and the movie, and that it had a very dramatic effect on policymakers, the fear of that. And of course, bin Laden at large made it seem like we were less successful than we actually are. But in fact, we're actually very good at it. You mentioned to me uh, off mic that the hunt for bin Laden actually by American historical standards was extremely lengthy. It was nearly 13 years. If you date the start of it as the um, Operation Infinite Justice, the August 20th, 1998 missile strikes at his training camps in Afghanistan, which were intended to kill him. He was not on site when it, when it occurred. But if you date it from there to the Abbottabad raid, it's nearly 13 years. And it's actually, if you do the math, it, that period of time is actually several months longer than all other six, seven, seven successful cases combined. So it's a very much an outlier in that regards. Do you think that's because bin Laden was better than everybody else at hiding or just, just statistical luck that it happened that way? Or what, what do you attribute that to? I think the factors that contribute to a successful strategic manhunt were not present for quite a quite a long time in the bin Laden case that I think the I argue that the most 
most decisive factor is what I call human terrain, which is that who the population that he is surrounded by, do they support him? Are they willing to hide him? Does the U.S. have the ability to gain indigenous forces to help in the pursuit of it? Do we have the ability to gain human intelligence as to where he is? And also, do we have the ability, will neighboring states help us in the search? And I think almost all of those factors broke against us in the bin Laden case for the, for the most part. Um, now, you mentioned in your book also that being successful in a manhunt, i.e. getting our man, uh, does not necessarily correlate to strategic success overall. Do you want to explain a little bit what you mean by that? Surely, if we've got Noriega or we've got Aguinaldo, we've got what we wanted, right? No, and this was one of the more surprising findings for me. I wanted to basically go in this and argue against there are a set of academics that say this doesn't matter. In fact, it's counterproductive. I don't, I don't go that far. But it was very surprising to see what, how little a difference it actually made. The three, there are three outcomes that really can happen. One, you get the guy and the larger strategic problem doesn't go away. That's the case with Aguinaldo. The, the worst violence of the Philippine insurrection actually occurred after his capture. And U.S. troops actually, forces actually fought in the Philippines for a decade, still trying to suppress the Moros in the South. Other examples of where we were, were successfully apprehended the target but didn't achieve our broader strategic objective would have been Saddam Hussein and Abu Musab Zarqawi. Neither had an effect, a large effect on the Iraqi insurgency. Another outcome is that we don't capture the person, we don't capture or kill our target, but that we do achieve our broader strategic end. And that certainly was the case, I believe, in with Pancho Villa, incursions from the Me from Mexico by ban large-scale incursions by bandits was never a problem again and Sandino we actually did establish a stable state uh, less than morally perfect under the Somoza dictatorships but a stable state that supported our national interests in Nicaragua for almost for almost 50 years so these were strategic successes even though we didn't get the individual we were looking for and it's plausible had bin Laden not been captured, one could make the plausible argument that we still never suffered another attack on the U.S. homeland. So arguably that could have been called a strategic success as well. A third category is we do, get, we do capture the guy and there's a thin correlation with strategic success. We got Geronimo and that ended the, the Apache's war, Apache Wars ended. We got, Shea, we got Shea and the Bolivian uh, communist insurgency ended. We got Manuel Noriega and Panama was never the problem that it was at that, the, the sort of nexus of drug trafficking and support of Marxist insurrections in the, in the continent in Latin America. But if you go beyond, if you peel the onion just one layer beyond those, you see that it was much broader strategies that led to the success. It wasn't the capture of Geronimo as much as it was the really sort of cruel policy of deporting all the Chiricahua Apache and Warm Springs Apaches to the East Coast, which was which an inhumane policy, but it was literally drain the swamp for potential Apache insurrections. Um, for Panama, for example, it was they took out the entire PDF structure, uh, the Panamanian Defense Forces that had supported Noriega and was the underpinning of his support. And same thing with the capturing and killing Shea. It was the broader counterinsurgency effort against Bolivian insurgents that ended the threat of communist insurgency in Bolivia. So in reality, it's... 
capturing the person very rarely correlates directly or not capturing the person very rarely directly results in what we're what we're looking to achieve so from a policy or strategic perspective then given what you've just told us is there really any point in conducting these strategic manhunts to begin with yes um there are two ways to look at it there's one is the counterfactual of what if we didn't pursue the person um and i think many situations would be worse if that leader were still were still in charge um i think that's definitely the case in panama that noriega could not have been that he was th- threatening americans he had killed an american soldier the night before two nights before the invasion we could and there were 50,000 americans living in panama we couldn't allow him simple justice sometimes you could not not pursue bin laden after 9/11 in theory you really couldn't let not pursue him after the other previous terrorist attacks so sometimes it's it is a matter of necessity but for policymakers need to go a bit broader i think in their target set that you also need to go after the support structures upon which they depend because often what happens is when you capture the individual famous case of this is the aguinaldo case is that by the act of pursuing them they become so isolated that other leaders in their organization emerge and take over uh, day-to-day operations and these men become as dangerous can become as dangerous so when we captured when Frederick Funston captured Aguinaldo in March 1901 other generals within the Philippine insurrection movement were able to continue the operations because Aguinaldo had been removed anyways and this is a possible we will see this this was definitely the case with Saddam he had been removed by having to be on the run he had been removed from day-to-day management of the Iraqi insurgency time will tell whether this is the case with Osama bin Laden but the key is that then at the same time you're targeting that individual is to target the subordinate leaders as well and this is for Pancho Villa we ki- we killed a large number of his of his key subordinate leaders and that made a difference same thing with Sandino this does matter now finding somebody who doesn't want to be found is ultimately an intelligence problem an intelligence question uh, and you have some cases in the book uh, Geronimo and Aguinaldo certainly and to a lesser degree Pancho Villa perhaps where you know we the united states really didn't have the high technology and the and the whizbang uh, gadgets that we have today to bring to bear on manhunting uh so in that sort of if you will pre high technology era how did we go about searching for someone well this goes back to human terrain and will will you be able to draw upon people with the local knowledge to be able to find them in the geronimo case geronimo um it's it's problematic to say this um because of political correctness he was not a very nice guy and there were other other apache clans that had were very much um opposed to him and they could find very easily they could find apache scouts who knew the terrain where geronimo where geronimo was hiding the same thing geronimo because he had been raiding mexicans for a very long time local mexican peasants were very willing to provide information to us troops in mexico as to where he was the same thing in the philippines that there were the macabebes a, a different ethnic group within the same region as aguinaldo's tagalog tagalog my pronunciations are terrible i apologize um that his tagalog tagalog movement that they were able to therefore they were able to draw in they were able to bring frederick funston pretty much to where the village he was because they were physically identical and funston it was a stroke of luck that they intercepted one of aguinaldo's couriers which began the trail with which had dispatches that they were able to decode and lead them back to aguinaldo's 
location. I think there's an interesting parallel between that and the search that eventually unraveled for bin, La- for bin Laden, that it was the couriers that made the difference. With Pancho Villa, none of those factors were present. Pancho Villa had a very much a Robin Hood image in northern Mexico, was beloved by the people, and it would have essentially been, as one historian said, it would have been like going to the Vatican and expecting someone to turn over the Pope to you. It just was not going to happen, that they were... They were in Pershing's memoirs, in, Pers- in the in the accounts of by members of the punitive expedition, just absolute dry holes on intelligence every time. That, that just no cooperation from the Me- from either the Mexican people or even the Mexican government, who Villa was in opposition to, was not providing any cooperation. So human terrain was was always the critical way towards human intelligence. Looking then at some of the cases of our more recent histories, so the Noriegas, the Zarqawis, Saddam, Bin Laden, certainly, uh, these have all these manhunts have all taken place in an era where, where we have all sorts of high technology intelligence tools. We have drones and signal intelligence capabilities and sophisticated sensors of various types to help us out. Uh, how helpful are these high technology tools? We like to think that we're in an era where you know suddenly all things are possible, or at least we're a year away from all things being possible. Is that really true when it comes to manhunting? No, I think that there, the utility of technology in modern manhunts, I wouldn't want to conduct it as we did the Geronimo manhunt on horses and just going around asking, but I think that the utility of modern technology is overstated because our enemies have learned to adapt countermeasures. Saddam Hussein, um, reportedly in his FBI interviews after he was captured, said he'd only used the phone twice since the first Gulf War because he knew the Americans could capture could capture the, could the, intercept the, signals. the signals. Osama bin Laden never used a phone again after 1998. His courier, who we eventually found, would drive 90 miles before he'd even insert the battery into his, the battery into his cell phone. Um, Lance Smith, former deputy commander of, of CENTCOM, has said technolo- they've realized technology is not their friend. So they've developed countermeasures. The Badabad compound itself was drone-proofed so that you couldn't see in the windows, you couldn't see in the windows via the air that it was inside the air exclusion zone of Islamabad so a predator drone couldn't get through the radar. They've learned to adapt to, they've learned to adapt. And even in the Banan case, the technology, there was one signals intercept that led them to the Peshawar area where they eventually found Ahmed al-Kuwaiti, the courier. Um, the satellite images were useful and probably thermal in gene or something. It hasn't quite been discussed what, and thankfully not, what was, but to create the mock-up for the raid. But they never captured bin Laden's voice. They never got a picture of him that they could say, this is bin Laden. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the best that they could estimate based upon the based upon the pictures of the person who they suspected might be bin Laden was that he was five, somewhere between five foot eight and six foot eight. That's that's so, not so necessarily. I. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not. So I, they knew it wasn't me, but but there there are very much limits because the enemy knows how to do countermeasures. Now, this is not true when you go into the lower parts of the network. The guys who again who have to the worker bees, for lack of a better term, the lieutenants who have to use, who have to use some sort of communications for conducting day to day operations. They're much easier to pick up. So I'm not trying to say technology is of no use whatsoever. I just think that it tends to be overstated a bit. You mentioned in your book, in fact, in the case of the the hunt for. Uh for Aidid in Somalia, 
that we had all of this amazing technology, particularly in the in the signals uh, intelligence realm, but in some sense uh, our target was operating at a technological level, sort of below what we could detect. His his signals were basically so primitive technologically that in fact they were essentially invulnerable to interception. They were essentially using Radio Shack level walkie talkies. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't, and it wasn't. I don't think it was an intentional strategy. It was just unfortunately the economic, the technological backwardness of Somalia that they had a perfect countermeasure, that they just didn't have the systems that we, that we could use. And those were the first use of drones in a manhunt. But it, again, in, those, in that labyrinth of, of back alleys, you just couldn't, you couldn't pick up anything. So technology is great and is sometimes helpful, but, but really the key here from an intelligence point of view is the human terrain and, and, and working your human sources. Yes. What other uh, uh, prescriptions would you have for what goes into a successful manhunt, or, or maybe not prescriptions, but sort of maybe analytic tools to help us think about when is this likely to come out well and when is it likely to not? I would say there, there are a couple of things. I recommend in the sort of rec- policy recommendations at the end, one is perseverance, is that the failed men hunts t- almost always fail very quickly, that the political leaders pull up stakes before they have a chance for things to come to fruition. Woodrow Wilson essentially called a halt to the punitive expedition four months into it. Even though U.S. troops stayed in Mexico for another six to eight months, they, during which time Pershing actually started to develop the intelligence networks that would have eventually likely led them to Pancho Villa. Similarly, same circumstances with Mohammed Farah Adid, that after the Battle of the Black Sea, the Battle of Mogadishu, President Clinton, they became spooked by the casualties and ordered a halt to all operations searching for a deed. But at the same time, troop, uh, local elites, clan members of uh, clan allies of a deed were coming into the task force ranger with information saying, look, we're done with this. We, we can, we'll help you get him. But it was a lack of political will. So perseverance matters. And I think that's certainly the case. Bin Laden, if anything else, shows that if you stick with it long enough, I mean, not all cases are going to rise to that level. Another element, I think, is you have to do deeper, deeper planning, um, looking forward to it. It's a very unsatisfactory answer to policymakers to say, if the guy was a son of a bitch, you'll, it'll be easier to get him because people will turn him in. If he was really nice, then it'll be harder because... We just don't like the idea in Washington, D.C., that some things might be beyond our control, that if people in the White House, people in Congress or in the Pentagon have proper wisdom, we can't marionette string the results we want abroad. But in reality, we can do some things, which is to think proactively, think about training training special forces in foreign countries that can enact – that can – uh, have a better local knowledge and can do some of these missions for us the way the Colombian police did in getting Pablo Escobar, the way the Bolivian Rangers did in getting Che Guevara. Also, we can maintain contacts with local populations. One of the grave errors of recent history was cutting ties with uh, the Afghan Pashtuns during the 1990s, sort of throwing our hands up in frustration at that bloody civil war after the Soviets left. When 1998 came around 2001 it would have been great to have a significant we had some we had some agents there of questionable reliability but if we'd had a much better idea of the human terrain there it would have it would have been very helpful to us so those are two things that can be done another element and this i think lesson has been i think hopefully unlearned 
well by the Abbottabad raid is that after Tora Bora, there was a misperception that it's all about troop strength. It became a very popular, I think some of this was quite frankly political a way to bludgeon the Bush administration was to say we let bin Laden get away because of lack of enough troops in Tora Bora. This is a net, if you've seen the terrain there, if you knew the human, the local population which supported bin Laden, it's a vaguely ridiculous argument, I think. But I think that hopefully the Abbottabad raid has put it back to that. Throughout history, even dating back to the Geronimo raid, people saying we want less forces, we can't get close to them in these large formations, they see us coming. With the Zarqawi, on the, the reason they used a bombing attack on Zarqawi was they decided any troops that approached, he would have he had lookouts who would tip them off. He had had enough near escapes, he had a system of lookouts, that these are the ways that smaller, faster tends to work better. As we move towards the end here, I can't resist uh, asking you, when did you turn in the manuscript to the publisher? Was this before or after the announcement of Osama bin Laden's death? I, I submitted, there, there are two things about the timing of the book that'll, that'll either look genius or disingenuous in, at, when, it gets published, when it's published now in August. The uh, original title was always from Geronimo to bin Laden. A lot of people have asked, whoa, did you change this? You cap, you're capitalizing on the fact that Geronimo was used as the brevity code for success. No, I'd always, in, I'd always intended to use Geronimo, and Geronimo is quite frankly one of the most fascinating stories because Geronimo was very ingenious at how not to get caught. And so the heroics and the trials of the U.S. cavalry pursuing them through the deserts of northern Mexico is just a fascinating adventure story on it in its own right. The second is I did submit the manuscript in November of 2010. And after two years of writing this and spending my nights writing this, I joked to a friend, I said, the only thing that can go wrong now is if they actually capture bin Laden. And I said this meant this tongue in cheek. Obviously, I wanted bin Laden to be killed or captured. And then when it did happen, it was just like, uh-oh, this could, in addition to the euphoria of, hey, this is great, we finally got him, it was the, uh-oh, what, what does this mean for the book? This sort of author's... I think all authors maybe who have, who write about current events and try to make prescriptions based upon them probably have similar angst that they'll get preempted by the real world. So, but I, I've, I've published books myself, and to avoid this problem, I write purely historical uh, uh, on purely <laughs> historical topics. I can't imagine what it must have been like for you. I, I think overall, though, the the details that have come out so far, and I, I don't think we know everything about the Abbottabad raid, and I don't think we should know everything because we have to protect um, sources, methods, and tactics that the that the seals and other JSOC elements use. But I think so far the details that we do know do conform to the findings I have for the first 125 years of strategic manhunts. Well, let's just close then with the question of uh, given you know, what you've learned from history here about our American history of strategic manhunts, what do you think is likely to be the results of the death of Osama bin Laden? I think it's too soon to tell. I don't want to, it would be easy to the, paraphrase the famous Chow and Lai quote about what do you think of the French, the results of the French Revolution where he's saying at 150 years and he says it's too soon to tell. I don't think we'll need to wait 150 years to tell about bin Laden, but I think what we really need to see is one, what was his role actually with the organization? How isolated was he? There are reports that he was involved in planning of future operations, but right now it seems very peripheral. It seems very 
insubstantial at this point. The second factor will be what, from the intelligence we did gain, will we be able to successfully target some of his subordinates? And the May, the first weekend of June, the killing of Ilyas Kashmiri is a very good indicator possibly that maybe there will be a trickle. I don't know if the intelligence was derived from that, but that is really the key is to get that next level of commanders that will really cripple the organization. Well, Benjamin, this has been fascinating. Uh, I encourage uh, everyone to uh, read your book, I, and I congratulate you on a very timely book with a, a perfectly chosen title, e- even if it was perhaps by accident. So thank you so much for visiting us here at the International Spy Museum. Thank you, Mark. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.